Welcome to the Reconstructing Healthcare podcast, a show where we discuss what's wrong with healthcare and talk with innovative companies disrupting the health insurance marketplace. Join us as we explore strategies to help employers lower healthcare costs and build a better health plan. Now here's your host, Michael Maneri. All right. Hello, this is Michael Maneri, and I want to welcome everyone to the Reconstructing Healthcare podcast. Today, our guest is Dr. Jeffrey Dermer from Fusion Health. Dr. Dermer, welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, very happy to be here. Excellent. So here's the game plan. Uh, What we seek to do here on this show is challenge status quo purchasing and educate our audience on non-traditional methods to either lower their healthcare costs or improve value for their employees. Sound like something you'd like to help with? Yeah, I think, um, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about sleep, which is one of the things that uh, probably most folks out there don't get enough of. And um, when we talk, hopefully, everyone will understand that this is a way to actually save money as well as feel better. Love that. To get us started, I'm going to read a brief bio about you and Fusion Health. So the audience has a little bit of context about who they're listening to. Then we'll jump into it. Dr. Jeffrey Dermer is a co-founder of Fusion Health and serves as chief medical officer. He is responsible for the development of outcome metrics and the medical design of population sleep health programs. Dr. Dermer directs clinical research and outcomes, oversees patient care pathways for all Fusion Health sleep health management programs. Dr. Dermer is a neurologist, systems neuroscientist, and a board-certified sleep medicine physician with particular expertise in technology-enabled sleep health delivery systems. As one of the nation's leading experts in applying the neuroscience of sleep and circadian rhythm biology to workplace fatigue and wellness programs, he's had the opportunity to work with many different industries and organizations to address the unique problems confronting these populations. His focus is to help people along their path of holistic well-being by ensuring they receive the best care that science can provide. Dr. Dermer received his medical degree from the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine and has a doctorate of philosophy and systems neuroscience from the University of Pennsylvania as well. All right, Dr. Dermer, any, anything else you'd like to add to that? That's a lot of stuff. I don't you often hear myself spoken of in these terms, so I'm uh, <laughs> kind of blown away by your, your introduction. Very nice of you to, to think of me in these ways. But uh, probably the hardest thing that I have in my past history is I'm also, uh, I got my DAD degree with four children which uh, actually keeps all of those things in perspective. <laughs> Absolutely. The yes. hardest job on the planet. Especially, especially my sleep and actually their sleep, which is a whole other topic, but we'll get into a little of that maybe. Well, I already have a question that I was going to ask you because I've got little ones that are three and six and, and, ah. uh, and new puppies. So. Oh, God. You're doing what I'm doing right now. I actually, my four kids are, are a huge age range. I've got a 25-year-old that lives in New York City and uh, works for the New York Yankees, believe it or not, and then all the way down to a five-year-old and a puppy. So you and I are not so far apart in uh, <laughs> our distress these days, but uh, yeah, I'll help you as much as I can. All right. Sounds good. So Dr. Dermer, you've been a practicing neurologist and sleep medicine physician for a long time, but give us a, a little background on on your personal story of, of how you came to really be an advisor to many organizations and employer groups, uh, inc- including notably the Atlanta Falcons, mm-hmm. on, uh, on sleep's impact on performance and then why did you eventually decide to launch Fusion Health? Okay, well, there's a, a large amount of information coming out of me in about 10 seconds. Here you go. <laughs> Basically, my background is I, I came into medicine with really um, a background in, um, in sports and athletics, uh, to be honest with you. I, I started out as a 
baseball player, football player in college, and actually a rower, and was on the U.S. national team for a period of time, and really focused on um, performance. And one of the things as uh, an undergraduate doing uh, what at that time was called psychobiology as my, my um, major, which is now neuroscience, uh, actually, I was looking at uh, the effectiveness of, of things that uh, are typical uh, behaviors, like eating and um, sleeping and exercise, and the overlaps. And there wasn't much information in any of these areas other than maybe a little in nutrition and some in exercise where I was focusing. It was really when I decided to go to medical school, which was sort of an out-of-the-box step in my family, where people were mainly scientists or artists, and uh, they kind of looked at me quizzically, why would you do that to yourself. It really was uh, Im impressive to me how little information I was getting at one of the nation's leading institutions for medical education, the University of Pennsylvania, where we actually do most of the research. Stanford, Chicago, and, and Penn are some of the original research institutions, but really getting a couple of hours of information about sleep. And it led me in my PhD work to really follow down some of the basic brainstem activities that I was looking at in animal models uh, for what's called writing reflexes. So I was looking at the ability of an animal to write itself when it moves and also to orient to its environment. So it's almost like the mind-brain question, do they see what they're looking at? Mm -hmm. And parts of the brain that actually are involved in that also turn out to be the same areas that are involved in what's called REM sleep. So all of a sudden, I backed into the sleep topic again, and it was hitting me again, but now from the scientific side, and uh, I just kind of made a conscious decision to move into that realm, that overlap from the neuroscience uh, of sleep into the clinical aspects of sleep. And what I found was, as an MD-PhD, where we typically live, we weird MD-PhD types, is in between clinical and research uh, worlds. We don't live right. in one usually. That's something that was really clear for me with sleep, that um, the clinical world of sleep was years behind the science of sleep. We had all of this great data from the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, uh, from European studies and French studies and U.S.-based studies that just hadn't made it into medical practice. And that was a, a real gap. So stepping into the gap to fill it actually meant doing research with large populations to first help justify the issues, the problems, and then try to actually come up with solutions. So I, I really became focused not as much in my bench research, which was finding the underlying causes of disease or basic systems, but how do we know, how do we take what we already know and move that into the world of practical application. And that's where I became involved uh, when I was at, the university, at Emory University in a research trial in Iceland, looking at how do we connect the genotypes of people with things like restless leg syndrome and complex disorders like obstructive sleep apnea with the phenotype. What the typical, uh, what's the disorder look like? What are the symptoms? And which mm -hmm. symptoms match up with what genes? So did that work and actually met an Icelander who was an engineer who also was a chief medical or chief technology officer of a company called Emla at the time. Uh, they developed the first home testing device uh, for sleep called the Embleta. And we worked together to test uh, hundreds of thousands of Icelanders in their home using these devices mm -hmm. and looking at their sleep. Well, he and I thought, hey, this would be a great idea for clinical care. This is missing. This is the missing gap. We can actually bring sleep care to the home where you sleep instead of bringing you to a lab. 
And so we started off with a company that was uh, Fusion Sleep in the Atlanta area, where we actually integrated all of the components of sleep medical care, and then put it onto a workflow platform Mm -hmm. uh, over a decade, and that's called Fusion Health. And so we actually apply all of this great neuroscience that we have onto a platform, which then workflows people through care and uh, uses risk assessments and uh, tools to test in the home as well as uh, in different environments. And that leads to really specific personalized sleep profiles and data collection that we can then personalize and uh, create treatments around that um, really create outcomes that we follow. And not only do we just give people the therapies, they stay on their therapies 97% of the time every single night. And we measure it objectively with data collection uh, from our therapeutic devices that are out there. Different Very, world. Yeah, different world. Well, very cool. And and I want to dive into the the uh, Fusion Health uh, product. But before we get sure. there, so I think, you know, things like sleep apnea or insomnia, I mean, those are words that I think are familiar to a good portion of the population. But this isn't a topic like diabetes that is talked yeah. about with frequency and is almost a ubiquitous topic when it comes to healthcare. So I would guess that most people don't understand the prevalence of this problem or, you know, how it impacts people. So can we dive into, into that? And what are the most common sleep conditions and how big of an issue is this in this country? Sure. Sure. And you actually brought up a really good point right there leading into this discussion, which is it's not like diabetes. It's, it's not like hypertension. It's not like metabolic diseases. It's, it's actually not a disease. Sleep is a process. It's a homeostatic process that we need on a day-to-day basis, like we need food and water or we don't continue to exist. So sleep at the very core is a fundamental of health in the sense that your, bio, your body and your brain need to go into this state. In fact, if you step back from it, if you look at, whenever I teach neuroanatomy, neuroscience of sleep to physicians or researchers, the first thing I do is just say, look, what are the three, there are three basic states of being. One of them is wake, the other two involve at night, and one's called REM, one's non-REM. Those are the three states of being that we know to be normal. There are combinations, there are transitions, but we're spending a third of our life in this eight hours uh, of night going between REM and non-REM, and it actually serves a significant purpose in restoration of function for us and for children and for the rest of us also developmental uh, purposes. So yeah, you're right. It's not like diabetes. It isn't a disease. It's actually a process. So jumping from that point of view, what we can talk about then is sleep itself has problems and people have problems with their sleep that are not sleep disorders that are actually sleep problems and disruptions, we sometimes call them, or disturbances, that's actually ubiquitous. It's sort of like saying, who here hasn't had a nightmare? (laughs) You know, we all have. (laughs) But who has nightmare disorder? That's a different thing. And so if you had post-traumatic stress disorder, for instance, you'd find 70% of those folks actually have these horrible recurrent nightmares. And that puts them into something that we would consider a disorder or problem that's affecting their life. So, you know, a lot of people have sleep symptoms and sleep problems. And I'd say the most common one is insomnia. And people Mm -hmm. will report, I can't sleep, and they'll call it insomnia because it's a symptom. And that symptom has a myriad of causes. 
some of them are very easy to understand, like uh, small children. <laughs> that's a cause of insomnia. Or a new puppy. That's another cause of insomnia. Yep. Uh, or drinking too much coffee. There's a lot of things that you can figure out for yourself and your behaviors and your environment that may cause occasional insomnia. But there's a, a, a group of folks, and it's probably around 30% of people out there that have insomnia that occurs more often than once in a while. And in that population, uh, it does take a little bit more of an unfolding of the symptom to mm -hmm. figure out if this is actually what we call chronic psychophysiologic insomnia, which is a disorder that's in the International Classification of Sleep Disorders. And that is affecting well, between 5% you know, to 8% of the population at any one time. And that's a specific kind of therapy we use for that. And it's a treatment that goes down psychological medical therapy programs. That's probably the most common symptom, but then we whittle it down to the actual disorder. It's only eight to 10% of the population. Same thing with obstructive sleep apnea. So people that snore, that's a symptom. 50% of people snore. So 60% of men, 40% of women. Yes, women snore. It's a very different snore, but they do. Yep. Um, and uh, that's something that is not a disorder, but in the hands of somebody who actually has sleep disordered breathing, where the upper airway is collapsing as not just vibrating and causing snoring, that's actually a disorder. So that occurs uh, genetically, we know, in about 25% of the population. So we have a 25% of us, one in four of us, uh, have enhanced genetics to actually have obstructive sleep apnea. Doesn't mean you'd have it, but it means you have the chances, much higher chance of having it mm -hmm. over your life. What we know is that around 10% of the population at any one time has significant enough obstructive sleep apnea that warrants therapy. So these are conservative estimates. So you can, you can see sure. this up to 30% of people in certain populations like truck drivers, for instance, which enhances for male gender as well as size, which also increases risk for sleep apnea. So, you know, when we look at the, the big picture of just sleep problems across, um, say you had a thousand working adults out there. What we know is that around 600 of those people or 60% will have these occasional problems. Everybody has a little issue with sleep. 40% will actually have a sleep problem that they're dealing with. And that's mm -hmm. a pretty high number, but it's a number that's been validated by a lot of good research from the CDC, the National Sleep Foundation, and a number of other NIH-funded NIH funded studies. So that group of people in a company, for instance, that means that 40% of your workforce is coming to work feeling unrested. Yes, And that's something we know a lot about. And that's where we're really interested in finding underlying problems that are easily treatable. They're not always easily found, but they're easily treatable. What we also know is that a very small number of people actually within the population with regular sleep problems are actually diagnosed. When we do health claims analytics, which our company does whenever we go in, in an engagement with a, a large company, we look at the population from the perspective through the lens of sleep, and we see, well, how many people have been diagnosed for sleep issues, sleep apnea, insomnia, restless leg syndrome, circadian rhythm disorders, and we're able to say, this is how many people, and it's very small. Uh, we also can see the costs of those people. So even though it may be only 5% of an entire employee's an employer uh, health plan that has a sleep disorder diagnosis, they often uh, subsume around 15 to 20% of the total costs of the employer's health plan. Uh, and this is because this is a population that also uh, is enriched for a significant chronic diseases caused by their sleep problem. And oftentimes we find that when we treat the sleep problems, 
we also treat the other issues that uh, are occurring, like diabetes and hypertension. Yeah. What I think I heard is, you know, for every thousand people in, a, in an employer population, about 40% of the population has a sleep disorder or sleep problems of, of some sort, but only 5% are actually getting treated for it. Is that yeah, and that's well, actually that's what our, our their health claims will say will tell us. We don't even know if that therapy is being adhered to. We don't know if that's actually therapy or if that's just identification. Because what we also know is that uh, a lot of folks who go to the doctor who get a diagnosis of something like sleep apnea, a, a full half of them will not take the therapy because they've heard about this Darth Vader mask and they won't use it, or <laughs> they 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 find it just not important enough because the they've not really connected it to the rest of their health or their well-being. So it's a gross underestimate, actually. And what we do know from uh, some good work within the, the apnea field itself, that we know that of the folks out there with apnea that needs to be treated, only 20% of the people have ever even been diagnosed or approached for treatment yeah, that actually yeah. need it. So it's a big underestimated problem. Yeah, so there's a lot there's a lot of people out there with these issues that that aren't necessarily being being entreated for them. So sure. let's talk about two things: performance mm-hmm. and or you know the ability to just function, right? So how how does if if we're supposed to get and, and I don't know, I think I've read the number seven to eight hours of sleep mm-hmm. a night, right? Mm-hmm. So what happens to this forty percent of the population that's not getting that that is having these yeah. disorders where maybe they're just getting four or five hours of sleep? Yeah. What, what is the impact on, on performance and, and just ability to function? Yeah, that's, that's a, it's a big topic, actually. And actually, we break it down a little bit more than the number of hours. That's actually important to talk about ahead of what happens, because we also often focus on sleep duration. And that's one dimension mm-hmm. of sleep. So the amount of hours we sleep, when we see that in the literature, you actually see it publicized. If you get less than six hours, you're going to get heart disease. And, and actually, those studies are really great studies. My, my daughter's actually been the author of another a number of them. That, that is not the only dimension. It turns out that sleep duration is only one thing that we look at. Another is actually sleep quality. So how are you going through REM and non-REM stages of sleep? Are you doing it continuously? Are you actually being interrupted by your airway closing or by movement or by insomnia or by your cortex waking you up because of excessive electrical activity? So the quality question is almost more important than duration because a little bit of high quality sleep is a lot better than a lot of low quality sleep. Got it. Um, Something we know. And then the third thing is timing. So sleep timing is when you sleep. And we have 20% of our population of workers out there doing shift work. And we know that shift work itself is a major risk factor that reduces the impact of your sleep, no matter how much or how good it is. So we have to take into consideration duration, timing, and quality. And we call them DTQs of sleep. So that's actually the neuroscience. We teach it that way, but in a little bit more detail. So what happens if you don't have those duration, timing, quality aspects of your sleep? It's not up to snuff. Well, the first thing that happens actually is uh, you don't actually function well in terms of neurocognitive function. Your brain doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of functional imaging studies in the last 20 years have shown what actually happens at the neural level. But what we can say at the behavioral level is that you're unable to actually take in information as you normally would and respond. So what we end up seeing is people are unable to actually do the things they normally do in terms of judgment. They lose the ability um, to regulate their mood. 
So they end up feeling very down or depressed. They can actually feel more anxiety. So the stress component of going to work uh, alone is there when you're driving in the morning. But if you're sleep deprived, it makes it that much more difficult for you to deal with that stress that you typically would deal with on a day-to-day basis. Couple that with also the impact that it has on your level of fatigue. And that's a very multifactorial term. Fatigue has a lot of components to it. But if you start from a point of in the day where you, you wake up unrefreshed, your fatigue levels are already high. So whatever you do to mitigate that fatigue at work is really not going to be sufficient. So one of the things that we do with fatigue programming, especially with things like truck drivers, airline pilots, is you know before you put yourself in the environment where you're going to use two watches and make sure you're functioning on your home time and not that time, it doesn't matter if you are sleep deprived when you woke up because it's it's all it's all for naught. And then that really comes down to the the heart of it that your brain on a night to night basis needs sleep so that you can repackage neurochemicals and that allows you to feel quote unquote refreshed. That's why you feel refreshed in the morning because neurochemicals are working and they're mm-hmm. activating synapses. When you don't have that, you feel sleepy. You can't focus. You're unable to talk. Your functions of higher learning are not there. You're unable to remember things. As I mentioned earlier, judgment, it's been shown in a number of interesting studies from a business school professor, actually, at University of Washington, this uh, researcher uh, Barnes, uh, Christopher Barnes, and he actually showed that judgment in the workplace, all the way up to higher management and executive levels, Mm -hmm. significantly impaired when people reduce the number of hours or quality of their sleep. And these errors in judgment end up with all kinds of ramifications from problems with HR to actually making less money uh, for the company if you're making decisions for the company or for yourself if you're working for the company. So um, that's all been demonstrated. And I think uh, it all goes back to your neurocognitive ability. You asked me before about my work with the Falcons. And so that's a whole different side of it. That's the physical side. Mm-hmm. And uh, there is a mental component, believe it or not, that, but it's much more of a physical and mental uh, overlap. The performance of your body suffers dramatically. And I've worked with swimmers, weightlifters, uh, football players, rowers uh, like myself. And what is true across all uh, sports and actually whether you're a distance athlete or you're an you're a sprinting athlete of some sort, that's, it really doesn't matter. Sleep actually is the recovery, the anti-inflammatory on a night-to-night basis that allows you to recover and replenish muscle function. So glycogen storage, the ability to use insulin in your body, and the way to mobilize energy is all predicated on your sleep. Endurance athletes to weightlifters cannot mobilize their energy properly if uh, they don't get ad- adequate sleep. That's on top of the neurocognitive impairment that they also have for motivation and mood. Uh, if they're sleep deprived, you'll see a huge change in their abilities just based on that. So, yeah. interesting analogy is sleep is the anti-inflammatory. I mean, so so I mean, right. it's all sleep is almost nourishment, right? Certain you know nourishment and medicine. Yes, it it really is. That's why you know when we talk about sleep as a quote unquote field of medicine. And disorders around sleep, it's really, it's kind of difficult to use the term, like, I'm a sleep medicine doctor. <laughs> People go, what's that? <laughs> like, well, hold on. First off, I'm a neurologist. Okay, we know that that's real. No, a <laughs> doctor comes across as a little bit odd. And it's only because the word sleep is such a common term, like calling yourself, you know, a tooth doctor instead of a dentist. It's yes. a common term that everybody knows. But really what we are is we're neurosomnologists. So we're looking at the neurologic changes that occur in state when you go to sleep at night that include 
every system in the body from pulmonary to muscular to uh, your nervous system and, and your skin. So everything changes at night. Yeah. You had the very simple statement at the beginning of just like your brain doesn't work, right? When you don't get enough sleep. And, you know, I've read, I've read certain things that, you know, sleep deprivation is cumulative, right? So, so for this 40% of the population that has these things that go untreated, I mean, does that mean that this is, if it goes untreated, is it, is it like compounding impact on a person's health and well-being? Yeah, very interesting topic, actually. So human sleep deprivation is uh, one of the topics I studied when I was at Penn with um, some really interesting results and outcomes in the, the area that I was there. The information um, that we have now suggests that sleep deprivation, whether it's duration of sleep, quality of sleep, timing of sleep, all of these are sleep deprivation components. Sleep deprivation itself, it impacts the vascular system in particular, the metabolic system, your immunologic system and your cardiovascular system, as well as mental health, every single night that it, you don't get enough sleep. And that impact is not necessarily reversible. In other words, yeah, you might feel better if you slept in over the weekend after a seriously difficult week of not sleeping well, as I did as an intern or a resident in medicine, sure. but you never make up the damage that's occurred from that sleep loss. And what we also know is that even if you do catch up on sleep on a weekend, for, we'll call it catch up uh, as a term, you actually aren't catching up because the cumulative nature, which you brought up, of partial sleep deprivation, not total sleep deprivation, sure. but partial sleep deprivation is cumulative and catching back up to that sleep debt is really not possible. Let me give you a reason behind this, because for years, and this is one of the interesting findings that from the Penn group uh, when I was working there with Hans van Dagen and their whole mathematical modeling group run by Dave Dinges, that, that actually was a time when we all were looking at sleep debt. So the amount of hours you didn't sleep adding up and being cumulative. It turns out that um, there's some really elegant experiments. What we found is it's not about the amount of time that you're not sleeping. It's the amount of time you're awake. So the excessive wakefulness beyond 15 hours on a daily basis creates a downstream impact on your brain and your body that you don't recover from. Extra sleep doesn't recover for extra wake, which is an interesting construct. So when I look at it now, and I talk to patients or physicians, I get them to understand that sleep is the other side of the coin. It's the yin and the yang of daytime activity. If you extend day and thereby shorten sleep or change mm -hmm. the timing of sleep, that sleep itself is not just going to reset you for the next day. That sleep is patterned and it's timed appropriately to go through a certain process that if you miss it, you miss it. And yeah. if you extend it and you give up your sleep, you've given up that time where you're going to get back all of the function for the next day. Yeah. Um, and you don't make it up on one night's sleep or two nights sleep on a weekend. The majority of healthcare costs in this country are driven by those living with, uh, you know, chronic disease burdens. Right. And so how does sleep issues for 40% of the population, how does that impact people who are already dealing with a chronic disease burden? Yeah, that's a great question. It, it turns out when we look at that um, health claims analytics that we do, and we've done this with over a million lives looking at uh, big companies across the United States. It turns out that that 30 to 40% of the population that has chronic conditions is highly enriched for undiagnosed sleep problems. Mm -hmm. And that's something that we know because when we look at the diagnosed sleep population, 
that group that we can see from the health claims, instead of it being 30 to 40% with chronic conditions like hypertension and heart disease and coronary disease and diabetes, it's 80 to 90%. So they've already created the downstream effect. And oftentimes they're getting diagnosed retroactive to the hypertension, the heart disease, the arrhythmia that was just detected. Mm-hmm. And oh my gosh, I've had 10 years of sleep apnea and it never got treated. Well, guess what? You have AFib now. And maybe we could have avoided, well, not only maybe, we know we could have avoided that. And in fact, there are many studies that are now showing that the chicken and egg question is really not so difficult to answer. Sleep deprived populations, if you look across time in this country, our sleep time has gone down from eight hours on average, just duration, again, not quality or timing, mm-hmm. down to an average of just over six hours. Two hours of change over a 40 to 60 year period. And that is not, that's a, that's a lifetime, uh, not even a lifetime. Yeah. That's a big change. And our bodies and brains are not able to compensate for that. So what happens is you collect huge amounts of diseases associated with the vascular system, associated with the immune system, these, these downstream effects that we know sleep deprivation has. And if you look at the sort of the, the, as the hours of sleep went down across time in those same years, the amount of chronic disease went up. And they actually cross over each other. <laughs> it's a great graph that I have from uh, yeah. a group that shows this. And that, that is continuing to go up. And their chronic disease burden, although in certain areas, is starting to level off because of CDC-based initiatives. We're still seeing that the population is sick and getting sicker because we're not diagnosing this fundamental issue, which is their sleep problem that's driving their diabetes, driving their hypertension. Yep. That's our problem right now. Yep. We're not identifying. Well, Given the fact that, you know, the majority of, of, of industry that we have in this country, we've really transitioned to a human capital society. It's a perfect transition into, you know, if I'm an employer and I have these, pro- these problems within my population, I'm trying to manage my healthcare costs, what do I do about it, right? So, so tell us, let's dive into the Fusion Health product and service and, and tell us how yep. it works. Yep. Okay, great. So, you know, we approach employers, first off, as uh, a culture. They have a culture of wellness, they have a culture of well-being, they have a culture of health, or they don't. And that's something that every culture, uh, we approach differently, just as we approach every individual differently. So there's not a one-size-fits-all. So even though we are a workflow platform-based company that uses a lot of technology to risk assess on the front end, what is really the, at the heart of our organization and the bottom line and sort of benefit that we provide is that people can quickly access care that could be at the level of medical care, psychological care, or even non-medical self-management that's well-validated and neuroscientifically true so mm-hmm. that they can then take the next steps, get into care, and stay in care because their sleep is something that's going to feed back on their outcomes and their care uh, for other conditions as well. That's, that's our approach in, in terms of the overall arching picture. Mm-hmm. But what we look at in terms of, uh, I mean, the HR folks and benefit consultants that may be listening, this is not something when we walk into a, a company that is often necessarily on the radar. It's, it's not showing up in their, in their health claim polls <laughs> because sleep is not diagnosed, just like that's obesity right. is not diagnosed. You'll see a rates of 3%, but you know, it's more like 36. So what we, we often do is a benchmarking procedure. And that's what is very unique about our approach. I think it's very much based in our research that we mm-hmm. came from, but we do a healthcare analytics exercise where we pull all their data 
and we analyze it for sleep conditions, first of all, but also the chronic diseases that are associated with sleep conditions. Mm-hmm. And we show the overlap and the intersection and the cost that's actually already in your system related to sleep. And what it does is it allows us to say, currently, this is what you're paying for people with sleep issues. I and mean, often it's two to four times more expensive for these individuals than the average individual. Mm-hmm. And even if we look within disease states, so if we look at hypertension or diabetes, and we compare diabetics and hypertensives with and without sleep issues, you'll see the, 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 um, the rate, the cost on a per member per month rate is three to four times higher. And these are already very expensive individuals. So we're driving annual costs well over $20,000, $25,000 per person. Mm-hmm. So that's our first step is, is to really help um, a company understand that sleep itself is at the bottom, is at the heart of a lot of these chronic diseases that they're trying to manage from the health claims perspective where they can see it and mm-hmm. we can provide the lens to see it. Not only do we provide the lens to see it, but that's also a benchmark so that when we go in with a program and we risk assess the population and people come into therapy, we actually can show pre and post outcomes, objective health claims based outcomes. And what we know is that when we have people coming into our program, we can really do significant change um, in terms of healthcare costs. Um, We've done research studies as well with matched cohorts demonstrating this, but it it happens time and again, and we do the same kinds of trending in our our benchmark data, that uh, the individual themselves will show a reduction in cost year over year of around 20%. Wow, and that's, that's it's a major change, and it lasts not just for one year. They don't jump back up to the line; <laughs> they stay there, and yep. they stay twenty percent below that line where they would have been, um, according to uh, their match cohort. Let's back up a bit. So you, yeah. you you've done the benchmarking for the employer, and you're able to quantify the problem with some data analytics. Mm-hmm. But from there, I mean, what's what's the next step when you engage? an employer. Because at the end of the day, now, if an employer has said, yes, we're interested, okay, how do you go out and find the people who, you know, have poor sleep? And then I guess the, to simplify it, how are you diagnosing who has the problem and, and quantifying and measuring it? Yep. And that's actually one of the, the areas that we've dedicated all of our work in uh, terms of using algorithms and, and uh, clinical tools. Mm-hmm. So what we've done is created a technology-enabled front end that actually uses an algorithm to assess populations, self-assess populations, using their history, their sleep symptoms, their past medical history itself, as well as even biometrics that we can get from an HRA or we can get it from them directly. And it assesses them for risk within a number of different areas related to what I just mentioned, the duration, timing, and quality of your sleep. And majority of people don't know much about their quality of sleep. And that's actually where most of the sleep disorders live. But there are also timing problems and people do not sleep enough sometimes and we can give them information there. So the self-assessment allows a large population sort of a very quick glance at something that is usually a black box, which is Mm -hmm. sleep. And that's something that's done and integrated within the wellness platform that they're currently using. It can be integrated into anything from an EAP program to actually a a new offering that comes in at any point in the year because it can live by itself or since it's technology, we can connect it into the front end of of a a navigator, for instance, uh, which we've done as well. So it, it really does live within the culture of each company in a different way. 
when we do this with a transportation company, for instance, that might uh, uh, want to do it with pilots or truck drivers, it integrates into their world, which is quite different, where there are certified medical examiners or yep. aviation medical examiners that need this information as well. So there are connectivity into, the, into those components. So it's all handled on a workflow. Uh, makes it very simple for the individual themselves, but also for the company, because now they're checking not just the box of sleep and sleep issues, but also certification <laughs> and sure. all the other sure. things that go along with these other disorders. So really, it is specific. We have a whole team dedicated to client design. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we we start off by uh, figuring out what the costs are, where are the where are the costs in these companies. Sometimes they have initiatives already in place, like a diabetes initiative uh, or even a, a wellness initiative. This becomes part of that. We integrate into what they're doing on a month-to-month basis. So uh, women's health, men's health month. Uh, we may have hypertension month or metabolic month. <laughs> Usually happens in January, but that's the sort of thing that we add content. So we have a whole library of sleep content associated with these that are based on basic good research studies that have been interpreted into more readable information for uh, the public. Got it. So, okay, as I'm understanding it, so so you guys are are your new program that's being offered by the employer and leveraging some good content communication and marketing to get it out to the population. And so let's say I'm an, I'm an employee within the population, Joe Smith, and read some of the communications that have gone out and be like, well, you know, gosh, I have trouble sleeping. You know, maybe I should look into this. And so how does the, the employee, the consumer engage with you guys? And then what's the process from there? Right. So because this is a technology platform, they actually engage through an app. Very simply, you can either uh, QR uh, scan it onto their phones or they can do it from their desktop or their laptop. And then uh, they basically enter into the program. It self-identifies uh, them. So they are already preloaded into the platform if uh, they are a member of the health plan or they're eligible. And it takes them step-by-step uh, step through it. So they basically have a login they create. It becomes their uh, login. It's all HIPAA high tech protected. So any conversations they have through the platform, any chats they have with a coach or with um, any of our navigators, that's all all uh, protected in this this platform. Sure. Uh, they can even have a phone call with us and through the platform and it's recorded on the platform and it doesn't end up anywhere else. <laughs> so there's a lot of ways people can connect with us. We have even been in places and environments that are pretty remote and rural without good technology. And so we have the old technology too, where we use paper and pencil. It really depends on what the employees need and that can be integrated back into a technology platform uh, directly. So folks will do that. They'll do the assessment. They'll get uh, what we call our sleep checkup, which is the duration, timing, quality index. And Mm -hmm. after they understand that, they can then take the next steps to get help. We'll see that on the back end of the workflow. So we can actually reach out and say, hey, looks like you got to this point in the evaluation. Would you like to learn more? So we personalize every step along the way for individuals using technology. And so tell me this, what is the technology? You You download the app, but how are you actually measuring somebody's sleep during the night to get to that, the duration, time, quality that you were, you were talking about? Right. So those are clinical algorithms that give us a good understanding from your symptoms, from your baseline, from your past medical history and all these other information points and even family mm-hmm. history. That helps us understand where your issues may lie. It doesn't quantify them. It gives us a qualitative view. The next steps are to do things that are quantitative. So if it looks like it's a quality issue and maybe a home test would be a value, uh, that's something you can order right there. 
from us. And that home test is just part of your program. If you needed to talk to a physician, because there's actually a medical consultation needed, you have that option as well. Mm -hmm. If it's a discussion with a care coach who can then help you with a self-help technique or a self-help component that's available on our platform, and we have a four-week mindfulness uh, program that works for uh, sleep and and difficulties with uh, relaxation, Mm -hmm. then that's another one you have available to them. So all of those are available. And then if you need testing that shows up in your home, you wear it and we get data from the device itself. It's a medical grade clinical testing device um, made for people to use in their own homes. And they mail it back, an envelope that's already prepaid. We get that. And actually within a week, it's up on your platform with results. You get an email, you click back in, it takes you to the platform. You can see your results. You can have a chat with somebody about them. You can talk to the doctor and then you can decide on a therapy and, and have that conversation. And that therapy could be something like positive airway pressure, a device that actually will help you breathe at night to alleviate an obstruction like this. And we have a number of different options there. But that's actually something that uh, an individual will meet you where you are. So we have teams around the country, uh, Mm -hmm. respiratory therapists and registered polysomnographic technologists, not something I say quickly all the time. And they will meet you and actually set you up with a therapeutic device. That device is linked to our platform. So every night you're using a therapeutic device in our program, whether it's an apnea device or an insomnia therapy or an online CBTI program, all of that data is collected by the same platform that we used from the very beginning, and it's on your timeline. And your care coach sees all of that data and interacts with you if things are not going well or if, if things escalate, like it looks like you had more apnea last night, what's going on? That individual is then through some machine learning that we're developing, actually gives you uh, gives our care coaches uh, an escalation, and they can send that to a doctor. They can handle it themselves. They have a proactive discussion with an individual. That's great. So we're talking real time data, being able to in real time monitor progress, you know, of the the patients with these different you know therapies, and then if you see it not going in the direction that you'd like it, you know, then then that calls for or or makes an alert for an intervention. Exactly. That's what our platform is all about. And those are tasks. Again, they, they work like a workflow. If your, your task was to weld on the left wing of the Boeing 747, in our system, it's to give a call to the patient because yeah. they had difficulty with their insomnia therapy last night. It creates also a, a system of support that just isn't there. You can imagine if you were given a PAP device, and actually one of, uh, one of our, my colleagues who's in our program, he uses his story personally, but I'm gonna use his story and I'll just keep his name out of it. Um, yeah. <laughs> but he actually, before he worked one of the big five bukas, and he uh, got his sleep apnea care through, one of, through his, his provider, his actual company. Mm-hmm. And he had to go to get a, see a doctor, he had to go get a PAP device. He ended up um, having to get retested in the laboratory again. He used it and he felt better, but nobody followed up with him, didn't know to fix, you know, wash a mask, get a new mask. He eventually lost weight because he, he uh, was able to exercise. And all of a sudden, the pressure in the mask was much, much higher than it used to be. It felt uncomfortable. It was waking him up at night. And he was, had to go back in and see the doctor again, put him back in the laboratory again, had to get a new machine again. All of that for a fee every single time. And what we do in our program is, and this is what he experienced, we gave him a, a, the PAP device after not having to go see a doctor, but after we, we figured all of the issues out remotely, mm-hmm. put him on the therapy. And yeah, we adjusted his therapy remotely. So we changed the pressure on his machine from Atlanta and he lives in Denver. That's really where we're headed in medicine. 
we're able to actually impact change in the home at the time that it's needed. And we don't need to send you back to the doctor, back to the laboratory and incur yeah. thousands of dollars of expense. So, you know, for us to say we can reduce healthcare costs by 20% year on year, it's easy to see how. It's, it's not uh, rocket science. The other part of it is that we actually can metric the outcomes in other diseases that sleep effects. And that's the, that's the hidden gem in this all uh, that's in everybody's health claims that they don't realize. Yeah, well, I think one, that's a, a fabulous example of, of one of how the healthcare system is designed to continually extract costs yes. from payers over yes. and over and over again. And talk about a horrible consumer experience. Hey, it's working. Oh, wait, it's not working. I feel bad. I have to go back. Yeah. Um, and the fact that nobody's following up with him. No, you know? no, and that, then, exactly. And then, you know, hey, there's some good personal effects. You know, he did lose, you know, lose some weight. Which is which is positive, but yet still has to go in. So no, yeah. I, I I think great example to show the efficiency. What we always like to to talk about here is just the improvement in value to the consumer. Yeah, I mean, what a night and day difference experience for somebody on your platform to not have to spend the extra time to go do all those visits. Right, and imagine if you had more than one sleep issue, which is actually not a minority of people. So if you had insomnia as well as apnea or restless leg syndrome as well as something else, you're talking to more than one physician. You're actually trying to get this integrated yourself. You're the integrator. That's what our care team's all about. So the care team integrates your care on the back end and yeah. we measure objectively how you're doing. Very cool. Very cool. And so I would imagine being that you guys are, 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 your platform is able to get all this data, I would imagine you're also able to, to use that and report out to the employer results and progress, you know, within the cohort of, of people that are engaged. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I mentioned earlier that first off, the health claims analytics, that's, that's one of the major ones that we, we provide. And it's one that's easy to understand because that's health is one of the things that we know we're helping here. But the other areas that are less apparent, something you just brought up is the elimination of the waste in the fee-for-service system. And we actually have had that documented by companies on us doing Six Sigma projects because they're amazed by how efficient things are. And in one project, actually, they, they told us after just three months of initiating an apnea program within their workforce, we had um, reduced their healthcare costs by $250,000 compared to what it would have been. And we improved the percentage of efficiency by 160%. Yeah. So these are, these are metrics that are there. And that's not even, you know, a crazy story. It's just what happens when you're able to eliminate waste um, yeah. and use the, of, and we also use a value-based payment plan. So all of our employers are paying for care, not on a fee-for-service basis. They pay us a bundled rate on an annual basis for episode of care. That's it. And there's a rate for apnea, there's a rate for RLS, there's a rate for insomnia. So it's based on conditions. And when you get to a certain point where, you know, we're managing apnea, it's the most expensive thing we manage. Mm -hmm. And you add in a few other things, there's no additional cost to it because it's really just a matter of physician time. And that's something that we incorporate into the care. So they're handling both your apnea and your insomnia in one visit with one discussion with the care manager or with you. So it really, it, it, it makes the process of efficiency 
is something that not only makes it easier for us to manage people and our doctors, but it also improves the experience for the individual and the company. I love the fact that you guys are using, you know, a, a bundled price per episode of care. I think that's the way the, the industry needs to move as far as, you know, uh, pricing from the provider side. Yeah. I want to ask a couple questions about the results. You know, we've talked about the cost savings that can happen. What are some of the qualitative outcomes for the individuals that go through this program? I mean, what, what's the impact in their lives? That's a great question. It's not one I get off and people look just for numbers. So <laughs> that's a great question. We actually measure these outcomes for people because oftentimes, you know, the one thing that you often hear or you might hear from people is how wonderful they sleep now and they're not sleepy anymore or I can sleep through the night like a baby. The thing is, that's not true of everyone. So even though we may have eliminated a sleep disorder, you might not feel that you're that much, quote unquote, more well-rested. And that's because you've adjusted your neurologic system over time to mm-hmm. that. And that's not something that quickly changes. And in some people, there's some actual there's evidence that perhaps there's even some damage to the system. As I mentioned earlier, you can't just make up for lost sleep. Right. And that damage causes you not to experience uh, feeling as refreshed as you used to. Well, what we do is we measure other things in your day. And we do quality of life metrics. We use uh, the QOLs that are typically used, like the uh, short form 36 or SF12 which have been used in all of the big CDC studies that show change over time. We also do a number of other scales uh, that look at anxiety levels, stress levels, depression levels, that you are, we're not treating depression. We're not treating anxiety. We're not even really treating stress. We're treating sleep. We're trying to get people sleeping well, but all of a sudden the outcome is, oh, my stress level, I can handle it. I, I feel better. I don't get angry. I find that I can work. I'm more social with my kids. This is where the SF36 comes in, where the anxiety scales, the, the uh, depression and stress scales come in. We even measure things like pain. So just ubiquitous body pain or yeah. have neck pain or back pain. You'll see suddenly people realize, wow, you know what? My back pain is now at a three. It used to be at an eight. And the only thing that's changed is I've improved my sleep. I didn't recognize that till now. Now I'm seeing it because we have to actually sometimes show people, hey, this is what's changed. Did you notice this? And, you know, so I've had very subtle findings. Some people just tell me that, um, you know, I I feel now not, I don't feel like I wake up feeling that much different, but I didn't notice that during the middle of the day, I don't get that lull. I can, I just keep working and I feel fine on why that is. And I'm like, well, we know why. (laughs) Because you're sleeping better. So it's, it's educating a population that's been used to being sleep deprived. That's the real trick that these folks have been sleep deprived for years. And now we've got, this is actually the, this is my soapbox because I started in pediatric sleep that we actually have um, not just a problem with adults. We've actually pushed this generational problem down to our children in a way that's far worse than it was when we were kids. Wow. It's far worse. If you look at the CDC data, uh, the majority of, of adults are getting seven to nine hours of sleep when we look at duration as a, as a potential uh, relatable signal. That means that 30% of the adult population to 40% are not getting enough sleep, which we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. When you look at children in high school, high school kids, this is, you know, you remember high school. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. What we're finding is that in high school kids, 30% of the population is getting enough sleep. It's the opposite. 
It's seventy percent of kids that are not getting adequate sleep on the night. And I, I believe that one hundred percent. I was an athlete yeah. in high school, and then you know you, you come home from your games, you shower, you eat. It's eight o'clock, and you still have four hours of homework. Yep. Exactly, and it's gotten worse as we've increased the sort of push down the adult-like behaviors to our children, where they have to specialize at a very early age. Um, as we've seen with some baseball. You know, football players that are trying to do two sports as professionals, that's, that's not heard of anymore. That's not part of the, you're, you're a swimmer all year round, like all three of my kids were. That's what you are. That's something that's very different from uh, childhood a, a while ago. Plus, we've also started to learn a lot more about school start times. Mm-hmm. And so there, there's a whole trend now in, um, in schools to start to recognize that kids have a different circadian rhythm than adults. And it needs to be incorporated into their lives. Just because it doesn't work well for adults doesn't mean it should be different. It, it shouldn't be different for kids. Yeah. So I, I'm hoping that that trend will reverse. But uh, you know, there are a lot of other things that go along with it, like obesity in kids. That's right. That's diabetes right. Diabetes in kids and hypertension in kids and even coronary artery disease in kids. This stuff is happening at a rate that makes no sense. But it does when you take a look at the sleep loss. Yeah. That's the one factor that really uh, makes sense when you look at it. You guys are, I mean, I think a fairly new company. I mean, how many employers have you, are, are you working with today? And is there a certain, uh, you know, size employer or segment that you guys are targeting to work with? Yeah, sure. We've been around for about 10 years as a, as a platform-based company. Before that was more research-based. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in that time, really in the last, I'd say six years, we've actively recruited, gone out and, and brought the program to employers. And right now we have 14 employers, uh, about 400,000 members. It's growing rapidly this year. <laughs> so we have um, very large organizations joining and that tends to be who joins our company, uh, who bring, who comes in. And those companies are, usually we start around 3,000 lives in a company. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's sort of our minimum. But again, it doesn't really matter. We, we'll, we'll do a program for 1,500 people or, or 1,000 people. It just depends on the culture and why they're doing it. And it turns out those are the companies that um, have moved to this. The, we have companies in the transportation and technology, even in things that are approaching aerospace. They're looking at retaining the brightest people and making them the most functional and performance-based. That's why they're doing this. It's not yeah. just... To check a box. So well, well, look. I think I think anyone who recognizes that that their business is all about human capital. I mean, they yeah. should be thinking about something like this. I completely agree. And you know, we as I think I mentioned earlier, we've kind of circled back now from our work in the last decade now with companies and getting this data about how much outcome there is if you can actually bring in a program like this. Uh, that we're now working with uh, the largest NIH-funded stroke research trial in the country. And that's really to help detect whether or not treating people with obstructive sleep apnea will actually help them to reduce the chances of having a stroke or a second stroke. And that's being done at, um, we just, we're starting it uh, just this year. We're starting after the investigator meeting is in February and it's launching at 110 sites in the stroke net. Uh, University of Michigan is um, where the uh, principal PIs are, Ron Chervin and Devin Brown. And I'm a co-PI with them doing the technology and all of the uh, testing, all of the treatment and the care management for the entire five-year project. So I think what, we, what we've realized is that if we do things in a more efficient way and it's outcome-based, not based on fees for services or anything else, we f- focus on outcomes, 
we can actually create downstream effects that, uh, you know, our researchers will now be able to use to prove points that they couldn't before. Because in the past, when we've had large trials like this, we'd have um, usage rate of 30%. Uh, for their for therapies like pap therapy, and you can't conclude anything from that. So they're yeah. negative trials, which is not really the truth of this. We know that if you're using your if you're getting good sleep and we're getting rid of these sleep disorders, you're going to be healthier. And stroke and and heart disease and all these other vascular uh, etiologies and metabolic disorders and mental health issues will get better. It's just a matter of uh, of being able to prove it. Well, very good. To conclude our interview here, if there's one question that I should have asked you but I didn't, what would it be? Oh, geez. One question. That's all. Well, <laughs> yeah, I think the, the, the one question you asked me is what's the goal, the goal of our company? Why did we do this? <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, the reason I got into medical in medicine and, and science to begin with was to have a major effect that's, you know, on, on the, the lives of people and their, their, their journey. And I think the goal of this company and the way we're organized bringing technology and uh, neuroscience and medicine, sleep medicine all together with the business sense of healthcare and understanding healthcare uh, is that we're really trying to get to the point where everyone has the opportunity to sleep well. And that's actually one of the things that we say in our company, it's healthy sleep for all. The idea that we need to move beyond this being an issue of cost and actually, this is a basic function of life. And we talk about, you know, people argue, is healthcare a right? Is it a privilege? What is it? How do we pay for it? When we look at sleep, it's not that difficult. It's not a right. It's a biological function. That's so right. Our, our company is focused on getting people the sleep they need and breaking down the barriers of accessibility, continuity, and getting every child and adult the opportunity to sleep the way they were biologically intended to. And that's how we look at it. All right. Well, Dr. Derma, I think that's, that's great. This has been an awesome conversation, super interesting, and I think our audience will get great value out of it. Um, for those uh, folks interested in learning more about Fusion Health, where would you direct them? Um, you can go to our website, uh, www.fusionhealth.com. Please just go to the contact us and uh, leave some information, and we will be in touch very quickly. If you want to see some of the videos there uh, of me talking about a little more of these points, please do. And uh, there's some uh, great information on how to calculate the cost of, of sleep within a company. If you want to see what it might be for your company using one of our uh, very thorough algorithm-based uh, calculators. <laughs> very cool. Well, hey, on behalf of our listeners and myself, I really want to thank you for taking time out of your schedule to join us. I think it's been very informative and I think our audience will enjoy the conversation. I appreciate the time so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Reconstructing Healthcare. For those interested in continuing the conversation, please visit us at www.reconstructinghealthcare.com where you can access the show notes for this episode and links to Fusion Health's website and contact information, as well as a host of additional good content and articles. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time on the Reconstructing Healthcare podcast.